the bug. So there's two bugs I remember in my life. One was when I was an ROTC and there was this, the biggest mosquito you could ever possibly imagine. I ended up waking up in the middle of the night and it was like, I remember this son of a bitch for the rest of my life because he bit me everywhere and he's literally had like an, a, looked like a quart of my blood out of its back. And then when I was in Iraq, they had these little, little shitty bugs. I mean, you could tape up your hooch all day long, but they still get in and they'd bite your ass all night. And I'm like, what the fuck? So <laughs> I, I, you know, I just, those two, but for the rest of my life, I'm, I'm 50. I just turned 50. I'm like, those, those, those two bugs. I'm still to this day. It's been 30 years. That mosquito um, had a smile on his face too. That motherfucker. Left. I killed him too. He's dead. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Hola, 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 amigos, amigos, players, playerettes, do-do-dets, everybody in between. Welcome to another exciting edition of Game of Crimes. I'm here, me, Morgan Wright, here with the man back from the shit show that was the shot show in Las Vegas, Murph. Hey, Murph, everybody. Murph. Welcome back. Glad to be back with you. Yeah, you... you <laughs> we talked about this on our Patreon episode. We'll talk about the shot show in just a second, because uh, it leads into talking about our next guest. But hey, before we do that, guys, thanks for joining us. According to the script, it says I'm supposed to do housekeeping. We we just did our quick small talk. Apple, Spotify, give us those five stars. We really appreciate it. It helps other people discover the joy that is Game of Crimes. And we've got a great episode coming for you. So you're going to want to share this. Also, head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. Our book section there, you're going to see two books mm-hmm. by our next guest coming up there that are there for your purview and review. And I know you're going to love those things. So go over and check it. He's got a third book coming out. Also, follow us on that thing they call social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes on Podcast and the Instagram. But where you got to be, where you got to be is patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Murph, I think the, our case of the month we just did is going to be one of the best ones we've done in a long time. It was about the uh, killings uh, in Tulare County, California, the six people that could have been probably were victims of a cartel hit. I think that was... I, 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 I liked what we did with that, and I liked the analysis you gave it to. Um, you know, you, you still got it going. I mean, I thought you might have just, you know, been a little, you're a little rusty there, but you're still kind of sharp like a dull knife. Well, I think it helps that we do these early in the morning because I'm a little more lucid then uh, this afternoon. Who knows? <laughs> but the SHOT Show, I tell you what, man, what a blast. I, I First time I'd ever been to it, Javier and I were there with Premier Body Armor, which we promote 100%. Fantastic people based out of Gastonia, North Carolina. Uh, just some of the technology, you know, I didn't know this. They just came out with a female, uh, bullet resistant vest for civilians. There were none on the market. Only law enforcement or military females could get vests designed to, uh, you know, accommodate the front of their bodies. I'm trying to be real diplomatic. Nice about it. Dude, so, Marf, we just, look, they, women, women have breasts, uh, that need to be, you know, you have to have an augmented vest for, I've seen some guys with moobs, man boobs. They're yeah, probably yeah. going to take advantage of this vest, too. <laughs> but I, I was shocked that that was not available to the civilian market. So Premier Body Armor has that out now. They've got—you're <laughs> going to love this. Somebody set them up with a challenge because they they have they have uh, bulletproof koozies, believe it or not. They gave me a bulletproof wallet, <laughs> or bullet-resistant, I guess I should say. But somebody challenged them, and they made a pair of bulletproof tidy whities Now, I would never want to be the test dummy for that. <laughs> 
<laughs> but they had them on display. Well, why not, Murph? They probably wouldn't hit anything vital. Well, I don't care. It's going to hurt like a, you know what? <laughs> like a shoot me in the ass. And I mean, that's going to be a big hurt because that's probably well, that, the that part your, of my Your butt. bulletproof wallet will stop that, you know. I, yeah. And what, you know, and I love them to death, but I don't even carry a wallet. You know, I don't have any money to put in it. So what do you need a wallet for? No, me neither, man. It's just, uh, I got a wife and two cats. You know, my my money's gone at the beginning of the month. But hey, so yep. uh, do that. Uh, as you can see, Murph did not follow the script because we were talking about Patreon.com and he had to get his know. comments said about the SHOT Show. But that's okay, Murph. You got it in there. Hey, we got, but we got some other great stuff coming out. 911 was your emergency. We've got uh, the final few episodes of the real DE Narcos talking about the real DE Narcos Cali edition. Chris Fox and Dave Faisal, you're going to want to listen to the fight. This this is getting real, folks. This is this is far better than what you're going to see on uh, Narcos on Netflix season three. I mean, th- just like we did with Murph and JP about season one and two, the real story. So, on Steve, if you think about that, between your episodes and uh, uh, Chris's and Dave's episodes, 27 episodes yeah. where we go into detail. No, but nobody, there is nobody out there in the market, in the world that has the level of detail on uh, the Narcos, the series and the real story behind it, other than, guess where, gameofcrimes.com slash, or no, patreon.com slash gameofcrimes. You'll find it on and, Patreon. And if I remember correctly, this final episode with Chris and Dave is two hours, right? Yeah, two hours. So 16 hours, we have 28 hours of content. You know, and I've known both those guys for years. Chris and I were, were young agents in different enforcement groups in Miami at the same time. I uh, went to Bogota at different times. But the things that he revealed, I had no idea they were doing a lot of stuff. I mean, Javier and I did a lot of crazy stuff. But what they were doing, man, they were out there acting unilaterally, which, which means without Colombian police backup. Well, I was never in a cane field getting ready to take one for the team either. So, well, that's what you say, but who knows what the truth is about that statement? I do. I know the truth. <laughs> but anyway, let's move along. Moving along, folks. So make sure you check out Patreon.com/slash Game of Crimes. Seriously, we put a lot of effort into this, and the, the one this month about the six uh, targeted killings in um, Tulare County, Goshen, California. Goshen. There's a tie into the Golden State Killer case. You're going to have to hear the episode if you want to know what that tie-in is. Also, um, just remember though. Um, we are a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but... You know, we never take ourselves serious. And one Nothing of the ways special prove, about us. Oh, there's nothing special. If you want to know that we're not special, just head on over to our Game of Crimes fans group run by our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. Just go to facebook.com, <laughs> type in Game of Crimes fans, because there's a group that Murph and I run, and then there's the fans page. Answer a couple questions uh, if you're deemed worthy, which it's hard not to be deemed worthy unless you're just a complete, total, you know, douche nugget. Um, you, you will get entrance into that special inner sanctum we call Game of Crimes fans. So just to uh, love Sandy Savaldo to death, but go dogs. Go dogs. Uh, is TCU part of the Big 12? About. I was rooting for TCU, even though Kansas State beat TCU in the Big 12 title game. That was a tough game to watch. That, like I said, that was its own crime scene there, man. Yeah, that was. So, well, that's another topic. So, hey, but before we get into it, Murph, uh, you know, we we've kind of taken a pause on small town police water. People said, "Hey, give us a little something different." We're still waiting for your feedback. Let us know. Uh, continue to listen to your feedback. I should let us know if you want us to bring down small town police water. If you like, kind of like these stories. But I've got something though. We talked when we talked on the episode, uh, the one we just did, case of the month. 
And you and I talked about this. We said if we got Derek on, he would just explode. It's about designating certain groups as designated terrorist organizations. Yeah. You know, we've got to make some different findings. Steve, well, this is tangential to it, but it's along the same lines. How would you feel if you walk down uh, to Orlando one day and you're walking down and, you know, the street and you come across and there is a uh, police station run by another country and they're keeping tabs on their citizens and, uh, you know, they're trying to do operations with Orlando police, you know, but uh, let's say it's from a coercive country like China. Really? I mean, yeah, I, we kind of have that already through our embassies and consulates of foreign countries where you know, they're on our is, soil. Well, yeah, this is get Steve. This is expanding. FBI raids Manhattan building used as secret Chinese police station used by illegal cops. This just happened. No shit. Um, yeah, I mean, this this is in the fall of 2022, but this is ongoing. FBI agents raided a Manhattan building in the fall of 2022 that was being used as a secret Chinese police station and was staffed with illegal cops who, quote, solved crimes. The raid occurred at the headquarters of the American Changle Association, a nonprofit that helps Chinese nationals who live in New York. The group's former chairman was Lu Jinshun, who in 2021 donated $4,000 to Eric Adams' mayoral race. The police station was located on the third floor of the organization's building. The police unit is linked to a unit code named 1110 Overseas, based in China's Fujian, or Fujian province. So the U.S. attorney, uh, when they were asked, they said no comment. But uh, it's on top of a ramen shop and next to an acupuncturist where a receptionist was surprised to hear it was a secret police station. The public was alerted to the existence of secret Chinese police station thanks to reporting from the Europe-based human rights organization Safeguard Defenders, which published research in September detailing more than 100 secret Chinese law enforcement installations worldwide. The fall 2022 raid is the first known raid by law enforcement on a secret police station in the U.S. According to the Safeguard Defenders, there are two secret Chinese police stations in New York, one in Los Angeles, and one in an undisclosed location. What do you think about that? You know what? If you don't think the United, um, the, China is coming after the United States, what better example do you need than this right here? Who are their targets? Who are they investigating? What they do is they go after other Chinese actually. They say, oh, no, they're just help them there to maintain their current Chinese driver's license and stuff. You know, no, it's part of an operation. Uh, I just spaced out the name. I'll think of it in a minute. But it's basically, it's an operation to coerce individuals to return to China, people that they want to have leverage over. It is a coordinated uh, way for the Chinese Communist Party to exert influence over expats who are living and working in other regions. And this is not, again, 100 locations around the world. They've got a place in Italy where Chinese officers and Italian officers go out on, quote, joint patrols. That should never be allowed to happen, ever. Hell no. Hell no. That, you're a sovereign nation. They have no rights whatsoever. What would, how would they react if we did that over in China? Well, first of all, it, it doesn't work that way, Steve. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. we, can't, we, can't, we can't buy land over there. We can't do the same things in China that they can do here. And that's been one of my yep. continuous complaints, gripes, bitches, and moans, is that if you want to level the playing field, make it reciprocal. If we can't run our social media apps in China, you cannot run your social media apps in the United States. Yep. It's, it comes back to the old saying, do as I say, not as I do. You know, and, and just throw this out there real quick. This is, this is nonpartisan when I say this. If you are using TikTok, please stop. Get rid of it. It's, I don't give a shit what the Chinese say. It's controlled by them. They are using advanced intelligence to gain information on us. And as silly as that sounds, your dance videos, the, the trending crap, the, you know, the challenges that go on, they monitor all that stuff. They're trying to learn. I think what they're learning is we're 
we have a lot of idiots in our country, but we already do that. Well, here, but Steve, the other thing they're doing too, this has been proved that the research is out there. They've reported on it. Other folks have, uh, you know, uh, reported on it as well. The algorithm used inside China is different than the algorithm used in the U.S. Inside China, when you're watching TikTok, they're pushing them towards science, math, Does it? you know, Does a it? lot of things related to that over here. It's things decide, it's things designed to influence your thinking. It's the drip, yeah. drip, drip. You do a little bit of drip, 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 and now it is a massive influence operation designed to change attitudes uh, and uh, beliefs about China in order to make it more acceptable for China to buy land, operate secret police stations. If you don't think that's the case, folks, you go do your own research and find Absolutely. out why bipartisan in the United States Congress, bipartisan, and it, not just one, you, you know, they'll, they'll get one person on one side of the aisle to work with the other side and say, oh, it's bipartisan. That, that's no. Bipartisan, I want a, I want a representative amount that shows that it, you're really invested in it. Bipartisan right. uh, findings that TikTok is a national security threat to the United States needs to be dealt with. And as we always say, don't accept what we say. Don't accept what the media says. Do your own research and make up your own mind. Don't let anybody tell you what to think. And so that brings us to our next point, too, now. So do your own research, especially when it comes to the unaccompanied uh, minor children and migrant children crossing the border, um, yeah. finding out what's going on there. Well, we've got a person on our episode coming up, Jason Piccolo, uh, former Fed. Worked at HSI, worked at all of these places doing the human trafficking analysis. And what he's going to talk about, I guarantee you, if it doesn't make you mad, I don't know what will. It's, you know what? And I, I, you know, our regular listeners know we don't hold back. If things are amiss in law enforcement, we'll be the first to call it. Nobody hates a bad cop worse than a good cop. But what we're learning on more and more of these episodes is how these people's agencies fail to back them when they're trying to do the right thing. It, it's, it's asinine. It, they should be ashamed of themselves. It's the, nobody, you know, the citizens, the law-abiding citizens certainly, certainly are not benefiting from what's going on over there because people are worried about protecting themselves and their own careers and promoting themselves. It's very self-serving. Well, and it's no coincidence, we don't believe in coincidence, Commandant, no coincidence that we had Pete Forselli, the whistleblower in ATF. Mm -hmm. Now we've got Jason Piccolo, the whistleblower, whistleblower status on the failure of DHS, the failure of our government to protect unaccompanied migrant children, what they used to refer to as unaccompanied alien children. They ran the UAC database. These kids were being put into the hands of criminals people with criminal convictions. There was no vetting at all going on. And you know what? Nobody listened to them. This is not like, hey, we're, we're, I think there's some fraud going on here. These are kids' lives in our custody or at risk, and nobody was listening, and Jason had no choice but, um, you know, make an official, uh, officially become a whistleblower and bring this right. to the attention of the U.S. Congress. And as you listen to this, I mean, listen to Jason's background when he was a Border Patrol agent. Uh, the stuff that he was doing, and you hear, I kind of call him out a little bit on this because he was doing some crazy stuff out there in the desert in the Ote Mesa Mountains WTF by himself. squared. What the hell were you? It's like Chris and Dave. What the hell were you thinking in those cane fields, you know? You're not kidding. You're not kidding. But then when you get to the point where Jason is just trying to do the right thing, he, he recognized and helped identify something that was not right in our country, the way these unaccompanied minors were being handled after they were in custody and who they were released to. And then it was brought to his attention, and then the agency, when he tried to do something about it to get it taken care of, the agency that brought it to his attention tried to deny it. 
this whole thing is just, it's a cluster. Boy, I tell you what, it's so, and I'm going to say right at the beginning, I'll say this at the end. Thank you, Jason, for having the guts and the balls to stand up and do the right thing. Yeah. And you're going to see, we don't hold back, man. If, you know, on the government, no matter what side that you're at, if you are involved in this stuff, we find out we're going to hold you accountable. And that's the case here too, is Jason is holding the government accountable because they failed to do it. So the only way we're going to find out about it, Murph, is I have to ask you, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all? The game of crimes. Yeah, baby. So get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on on this one. You're going to hear some stuff here you've never heard before. Bring on Dr. Jason Piccolo. Guys, I'm telling you, we decided to kick off this new year and we're going to have some, we're going to go deeper on some stories and some things that have a lot of impact. We're still going to have a lot of fun. Don't worry. We're still unpaid, the highest unpaid comedians you'll ever meet. <laughs> but what we want to do is bring on some really good stuff. Now, when I first heard this guy's name, all I could think of was Brian's song. <laughs> Brian Piccolo. <laughs> He's nodding his head. He knows. Jason Piccolo. Welcome to Game of Crimes, bro. Uh, is it Jason or is it Brian? How many times during this conversation are you going to call me Brian? That's what no, I'll call know. you Jason because Jason's the name of my oldest son, so I'm not going to forget that. Okay. Now, I do have a brother named Brian Piccolo, so he was born in his 60s. I wonder where he got that name from. Hmm. You never know. Maybe I'm related. I tell you, when I was a kid, that was probably the only movie I remember crying at, Brian's song. You know, it's like, oh. Exactly. Don't, let him, don't let him fool you there, Jason. He cries here on the show all the time. Uh, it's a Titanic, you know, the movie Heat. It's or, all all the movies you can cry in. Well, whenever I give him a hard time about being a trooper, he you know brings a tear to his eye. Yeah, because I realize how ignorant and uninformed you are growing up in the hills of Tennessee and West Virginia, Murphy, and it breaks my heart. But I'm, pr I'm proud of you that you made it so far in the federal government. And you, know, and you got a throwdown case. You caught one guy, and you've been living off that ever since. So Right on, brother. You can work the job, <laughs> or you can let the job work you. <laughs> well, before we get too far afield, hey, Jason, so let's talk a little bit, too, like we do with everybody, Cosa Nostra, thing of ours. How did you get started in this? I mean, uh, again, like I asked people, were you just drunk one night walking around in your underwear, ended up being recruited? I mean, you know, how did you, what was your path, you know, going up through school, you know, and before you got into this thing we call law enforcement? Well, you know, it's not like the agency where you do get drunk and they, they find you in a bar and like, hey, this guy's got some skills. No, I, uh, that would be Secret Service in Columbia. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Let's not, not even talk there. about that. When that, that happened, is... Murph, you remember when that happened? <laughs> a lot of the guys were here in Ashburn. All the news vehicles. <laughs> anyway, let's let's oh, go back to you. Gosh, yeah, let's. I, I, I now you have me thinking about Columbia and those guys. It's like, come on, you're giving up your your GS thirteen hundred thousand dollar plus job a year. Mm -hmm. Just pay it. Just pay it. You know? yep. And if anybody doesn't know about it, just go just Google Secret yeah. Service Columbia. <laughs> yep. <laughs> hey, you know, so I I was not a stellar student growing up, but you know, it's just, you know, life gets in the way sometimes. Grew up in a New Jersey, beautiful area, actually the Garden State part of New Jersey, up by the Appalachian Mountains, so near the Poconos area. So, wow, nice. Yeah, I uh, I spent a lot of time up in the mountains hiking, and I spent a lot of time watching the '80s movies like Rambo, Platoon, and and every every Stallone movies, Cobra, and all the other stuff. So I had like a cross between what did I want to do when I grew up? Do I want to be <laughs> I a got soldier an attitude or a problem, cop? But it's a very yeah. small one. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Do I want to be a cop or do I want to be a soldier or do I want to be both? So I figured the best thing to do is is to become a soldier, then become a cop. 
And, but, you know, like I said, I wasn't a stellar student, had some childhood stuff going on between my parents and I, and I was expeditiously removed at a certain age uh, when I was younger, i.e. getting kicked out. Uh, it wasn't anything that I was doing bad, but, you know, I moved out, got in with a very stable family. How old were you? Uh, the first time was 15. The second time I moved out was 17. And that was just because like, at the time my parents were separated. My mom went through some trauma herself and uh, there was a lot of suicidal ideations between, you know, my mom and other things like that. So I ended up moving out into a stable environment and that kind of put me, set me up for, you know, later on, you know, getting into education and getting into everything else after the service. But I needed to first get into like the right mindset. So I joined the army. Hooah. Hua. Yeah. Uh, joined the army. And then when I got out, I decided. Oh, no, 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 no. You don't get to gloss over this shit. Whoa, <laughs> the army. Um, <laughs> let's go back. So first of all, where'd you join? Where, you know, you know. Uh, okay, we'll, we'll get, okay, we'll get into it. We you got to so, tell them about how you got exactly what you wanted when you went in the army. I read your book. I, oh, God. <laughs> let's, let's talk about that. So there's a story behind this one. I think you, you guys, the, everybody in the government knows what a fiscal year is, and a fiscal year is in September. But the first thing is, I, so I joined the reserves. I, I've wanted to get the best of both worlds. I was like, hey, you know what? I'm going to go infantry, reserves, airborne ranger. I'm going to get everything I want. I want to be an airborne ranger. Yep. And this is the 90s when like the reserves were still had infantry. Because yep. I was like, oh, I'm not going to go nas nasty guard or national guard. I got to go reserves. I didn't know any better. I was like, what? At the time when I joined, I was 20. And when I joined the reserves, I was 19. So I go down and I, before you go to basic training, you go to drill. So I go to drill and I'm like, I go up to the captain. I'm just a dumbass. I'm not even like a private at the time. And I go, hey, sir, uh, when can I go to, after I go through basic and everything, when can I go to ranger school? And he's like, <laughs> he like laughs. He goes, he goes, first off, we're mechanized infantry. Meaning like there's, it's in order for like a lot of the listeners out there, if you don't know, if you go to a mechanized unit, there's, you're not jumping out of planes. You know, you're not going to jump a tracked vehicle out of a plane. So. Well, you goes, will, but only once. Once. Yeah. Once. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to hear a big thump. And what so do they say I, about jumping out of airplanes? It's not the fall that kills you. It's that very sudden stop at the end. Yeah, exactly. Eh, some, a couple people lived. That's a whole nother story. But mm. uh, so I go, um, okay, so I'm not going to jump out of planes, but can I go to ranger school? Because you don't have to be an airborne in order to be a ranger. A lot of people don't realize that. He goes, yeah, if we ever did get a slot, you're never going to get it. So I'm like, okay. I go back to my recruiter and I'm like, and you know, when you're joined the reserves, you go to a regular active duty recruiter at the time. It's complete. I, man, if I knew about the National Guard back then and how they really, you could do a lot in the National Guard. I didn't know any better. So I go to a recruiter. I'm like, this is bullshit. I want to go airborne ranger because, you know, the recruiter was like pumping me up the whole time. He's gave me like a 75th scroll. He's like, hey, he'll take this you, patch on. tell you anything you want to hear to oh, get I know. this sign, man. And he tried to say, I'm like, yeah, one of my really high speeds gave me this scroll and I want to give it to you. You know, he probably had a whole drawer full of them. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, uh, okay, fine. Then I want to go active duty. I'm going to do this. And uh, he's like, okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to file a hardship. I need you to write a letter that says you can't afford to live on the outside world and you want to leave as soon as possible because that's the only way we're going to be able to get you what you want. And I'm like, okay, yeah, hey. I think I still, you know what? I got all my paperwork back from all that. I think I still have that handwritten letter. Handwritten, like, you know, really bad handwritten letter. I get it framed that on my wall and that when I retire. 
And so I go down there, I'm like, yeah, let's do this. He gets everybody to sign off on it and go in there at the beginning of September, close to the end of the fiscal year. And MEPS, you go to military entrance processing station or whatever in Scranton, Pennsylvania. I go in there and I'm like, yeah, let's do this. I'm ready to go. I want to leave in like two weeks. So <laughs> the MEPS sergeant goes, uh, yeah. So here's what we got. We got Carpenter and we got 13 Bravo. I'm like, what's a 13 Bravo? And he's like, it's a cannon crew member. I'm like, oh, hell no. I'm like, I don't want anything to do with a cannon. So uh, I go, no. And he goes, well, you know what's going to happen now is you're going to be stuck in the system and we're not going to be able to process your application for at least another year. But look at this. If you go artillery, it's combat arms. So you're going to be able to go airborne infantry, ranger and everything. I mean, not airborne infantry, but you're going to be able to go airborne ranger. Then later on, you can just transfer an infantry. So I'm like, okay, I'll do it. So, so I think 19 <laughs> days later or something like that, the September 29th is when I report like literally two days before the fiscal year. And I keep bringing up the fiscal year because people don't realize when the fiscal year changes over at the end of the year, they're just trying to get rid of anything they have left over the new fiscal year. I could have went in there in October and I'd be like, Hey, airborne ranger, like, hell yeah, here you go. What else do you want? You know, do you want a Camaro with 10% interest or 30%? That I could have had that in my contract, but no, Three weeks later, two, three weeks later, I, I show up at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Um, the whole time we're training on self-propelled artillery. I'm like, oh, this is cool. Just training, just training. We'll learn how to do all the other stuff later on. You know, like the artillery could jump out of planes, right? Everybody's getting their orders and I get orders for Fort Carson, Colorado. And I'm like, Fort Carson? I'm like, I don't know any airborne units out there. I know Bragg and this and that. I'm like, okay, when I get there, you know, whatever. I didn't know any better. And this was before the internet. I mean, there was, I mean, Al Gore didn't create the internet yet. So this was before I could get Al Gore is amazing. It. And real quick point, touch point. Um, my dad, when he went to Vietnam, went out of Fort Carson. We lived in Cannon City while he deployed out of Fort Carson. Oh, wow. Uh, back, he was a World War II and a Vietnam vet. But uh, yeah, he would, uh, after we came back from Iran, uh, we moved to Colorado. And that's where I know Fort Carson well. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. You know, when I got off the plane, I was like, wow, this is beautiful. These mountains are incredible. I mean, the oxygen level of time, you know, coming from Fort Hill, Oklahoma to there was kind of interesting headaches for a few days. Well, I went through Fort Lost in the Woods Misery during June and July of 1979. If that kind of dates this conversation, you want to talk about the most miserable eight weeks you could ever have in a human life. Uh, it's to be in 110% humidity where it's 90 degrees every day. Woohoo. That sounds, sounds like Florida. Very fun. Yeah, I'm ready to move. <laughs> yeah, sign, sign me up, Sarge. I get out there and uh, I get to the motor pool and I'm like, wow, self-propelled artillery it is. And this is like the M109. It was stamped on a barrel that it was from the Vietnam War, speaking of the Vietnam War. So there was no airborne infantry in my future. And uh, yeah, so I got to Fort Carson. I was there for a bit. Uh, when it came, so I was set to stay there, you know, young guy, I got married. My wife was an interrogator and she comes out with whoa, orders. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's, let's roll back a little bit. See, you just gloss over <laughs> My wife was an interrogator and blah, blah, blah. Okay. First of all, how'd you meet your wife? And when you say she was an interrogator for who? Army? Navy? Yeah, the army. army. So wife was a night. I met her at a bar. Oh, she, there's a shock. Were you part of yeah. the E3 mafia at the time? Actually, I was, I was, you know, later on I was E4 mafia and she was always, she was always a rank ahead of me until later on. So she was an E4, 97 echo, uh, interrogator. And back then it was, uh, you had, now that I think they just 
I don't even know what they call them, the linguists. But she was a Russian, Serbo, and German uh, interrogator slash linguist. Wow. So then she came down with orders for Fort Hood. Yeah, was she was she born in America or she was she uh, with those kind of language skills? Did she come where her parents did they? Yeah, she's from Minnesota. She's yeah, she was Minnesota. She knew German, and you know she knew Minnesotan, which is basically Canadian. Hey, hey, right, for sure. Yeah, Yeah, don't you know? Yeah, that's that's a whole other story. I'll talk about Minnesota a little later. Oh, my sister and brother-in-law are from Apple Valley. Oh yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, I, sure. I, I, I was in a later on. Oof, I uh, I was in the National Guard up in Rosemont, you know, at the uh, the military my, intelligence battalion. All of my my ne- my nieces and nephew graduated from Rosemont High School. Oh, that's cool. That's a small world. There we go. There we go. Uh, we ended up. So, Murph, sorry, hold on. Murph is feeling left out. Do you have anything that might tie Murph back into this? Oh, Minnesota. Just wake me up when you are finished talking about Minnesota. <clears throat> Yeah, so Texas, <laughs> Texas, we can we can bring Murph into the Texas fold here. Yeah, but let's and let's continue on with your wife though. You, this is this is interesting. So interrogator slash linguist. So uh, you know, continue on there. So when you know, I was going to come down with. Uh, we did the expeditious marriage because I was about to get get orders for Korea. Get married. Ended up, I was going to transfer. Our unit was deactivating. The fourth ID was deactivating and moving to Texas. So we planned on going Spanish linguist. So I'm like, okay, so I take the defense language aptitude battery and we go down to the, the branch manager. And at first he was blowing smoke up us, typical army fashion. He was like, yeah, once you guys, once you take the D-Lab, we'll send you to Monterey, you go to Spanish, six months in California, and then we're going to transfer you out to Fort Bragg. You both go airborne. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Let's do it. I go down, take the D-Lab, come back to the branch manager. He goes, ooh, your scores are a little too high. And for me, I was like, wow, who's this guy talking about? He goes, but we do have Arabic. He's like, what about Arabic? And then you can go to Fort Bragg. And I'm like, uh, this is the 90s. I'm like, no, no thanks. So we ended up going to Fort Hood. And uh, Fort Hood, I went to First Cav. And then, yeah. I, uh, that's where, you know, later on in, like I wrote a book and stuff like that, but this is how I found out about the border patrol is when I was in at Fort hood, I met, uh, another, he was a linguist with my wife. Uh, his name was Chris Bacon. And then Chris and I become really good friends. He just got out of the army and he was going into the border patrol. I'm like, Oh, this is cool, man. What the hell is the border patrol? Mm-hmm. I'm like, it sounds like a good job. It's federal. It's law enforcement. I can go on a border patrol and then I could do like just transfer around the government. I could go airborne. And the border patrol, yeah. <laughs> Airport border patrol. We're going to parachute in. That means yeah. you jump off your horse. Exactly. <laughs> That's your airborne. <laughs> jump out of the Broncos. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So Chris, you know, about to get out of the Army. Chris goes into the border patrol. I'm like, okay. I find the expeditious, uh, expedited hiring for the border patrol. And that's where I go and I test. You know, as soon as I go on terminal leave, we drive out to Oklahoma city. I do like a, a two day test to get into the border patrol. I'm like, Oh, this is great. So now I have Real a job. Quick, yeah. But when you, when you're going on terminal leave, how many years have you got in by this point? And the, uh, uncle Sam date released me yet. Uh, mafia, uh, three years, three years. Yeah. And my wife at the time had five. So we're like, oh, we're getting out. So I end up going out to, um, Oklahoma. I do the testing. I'm like, Oh, okay, this is cool. Um, now I have a job. Now I have to wait. 
So while I'm waiting for that, I, we move out to Jersey for a few days. I mean, for a few months and we end up in Minnesota cause we're just waiting for my orders for the border patrol. So the plan is my wife's going to go to college while I go to the Academy. So she ends up, uh, getting accepted into Minnesota State University, which is Mankato State back then. And so the Border Patrol comes back, and I'm thinking, hey, I'm going to go to San Diego, because at the time, everybody's going to San Diego. That's where my best friend went. It's going to be cool. We're going to go to San Diego. This is going to be great. So I think it was like January 7th. and You do know there's another border, too, on the north. Yeah, nobody back then. Nobody went to the northern border ever. Yeah. Nowadays, you could like when you apply, I think you could say you want to go to the northern border. Ugh. So instead of going to the uh, San Diego, the border patrol is like, "Hey, you know what? Uh, we got Brownsville, Texas." And I'm like, "Brownsville?" I pull out an atlas because you know this is still predating. Me. <laughs> tell you what, that um, ain't San Diego. That's not San Diego. It is the armpit of Texas. Yeah, Ooh. so I'm like... No uh, offense to people in Beeville there, sorry. Well, I'm like, you know what? I have all this college fund and GI Bill. Let me just knock out my degree, and then we'll go, and we'll see what, what's going to happen. So I said, uh, no thanks. I ended up just... It was January 7th. I planned on going... I was going to take like an EMT course or something just to get credits. But then the, the college was like, hey, you know what? We'll bring you in as a special student. And, you know, I ended up going to college. Mean? That means we'll bring you on. If you don't screw up, then we'll bring you on as like a full-time, like you could be like a real bona fide student. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> okay. Did, did they know your background or was that just because of a... Uh... No, it was because of my background. So before I went in the Army, I ended up, um, you know, I had, um, I went to community college and, you know, while I was in my first semester at community college, like my best friend died, girlfriend left me, you know, dog left me too, probably, who knows, but Sounds it was like a really a country song in the making here. Exactly. So, and my, and my night, my 1976 Chevy blazer died literally. I mean, I forgot to put oil in it. So all these things happened <laughs> at the same time. And I was like, I just a really crappy student. So I ended up having F's. Cause I didn't rather than withdraw like a smart person would do. I just let it go and just never showed up again. So when I went to college, college, I had to, you know, because I had those F's hanging over me and later on they get expunged, but they, they're like, okay, you do a semester and you get good grades and we'll be good to go. So I, uh, I applied, got, um, did a, uh, major in law enforcement, minor in military science, joined ROTC cause I didn't have enough. I didn't have enough of the army. So I joined, I went to college, joined ROTC and the national guard all in like the same week. So I went MI in the national guard, did all the counterintelligence, not counterintelligence. Uh, yeah, it was counterintelligence special agent. Cause back then you could do it by book. So I got all the, uh, the certs and all the other good stuff to get the MOS for 97 Bravo. I think it was. And then, um, in the summer is when I had my first introduction to the DEA. Cause I was doing in the summer is I would cut down marijuana for the, uh, the Minnesota counter drug program. And that's when the D so rather than a DEA guys going out there and having to cut it all down, they would bring in the national guard, but I do have to give it out to, to, to Murph's guys. So they would bring us Gatorade and burgers all day long. Cause we're burning the weed and inhaling the fumes. You got the munchies. So, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> hey, wait, here's, here's an interesting question, even for you too, Murph, because you bring up something too. We had guys go through DA school, but they did the infill exfill stuff. You know, they zip line them in on a black Hawk. And mm -hmm. as I found out too, if you're the prick of the class, they always put you at the bottom of the zip line because they dunk you in the water on the way out. Um, but what happens when you're burning weed and stuff like that? Um, you know, at some point that's going to register if they do any type of, uh, you know, radio immunoassay or, you know, do any kind of drug test. How do you, I had how do you letter. account for that? Oh, I still have those letters too. So they'll put like orders in your, um, into your file saying, you know, you've been exposed to marijuana and everything. And it's crazy. You know what? Hold on a second. You guys keep talking. All right. We'll talk. You know, Morgan, you, you, you glossed over something also. Were you the guy, the last guy hanging, getting dunked in the water? No, I never, I never went to that school. I went to the two week course, the investigators course. Um, uh -huh. sorry, man. It was like, I, I got to ride in a, speaking of that, well, I was in ROTC in college too. I joined the reserves to go into ROTC. Uh, by the way, my dad went through, uh, uh, the DLI in Monterey right before he, that's where he learned Farsi before we went to Iran. So I got oh, pictures nice. of me as a Ute there on the court, but no, I never, uh, I went to the investigator school. I did not go to the, uh, uh, eradication school. So there, ha ha, well, if they, blah, if, blah, blah. If they had dumped you, they'd have probably just hovered there for a while. And uh, left can you see that picture there? Oh my God. Yeah. Oh yeah. So this is a picture of me burning weed. And you know, and now I think about it, I'm like, no N95 masks back then. It's just straight diesel and weed. Who cares That's about it, those bro. chemicals? Hey, you got uh, a letter in your file. What else? What, what, what yeah, I got the know? letter. Who cares about the burn, the toxic exposure? What was it like um, when you started burning that stuff? I mean, how intense was that? You know, did you did you experience the euphoric effects that people claim? Uh, you know what? The problem was it's all of the diesel we used to burn it. Oh, yeah. And that gives you a, a really crappy headache. So I didn't really get the euphoria as more than just headaches from diesel. So here's a well, quick question, see, That's too. been a well-protected secret that now you know why DEA gets involved with the National Guard. Uh-huh. The DEA guys were over here like, you know, hey, let's just hang out. And they were really weird how the DEA guys were always like downwind of all the smoke. <laughs> On their first rodeo. <laughs> no, but it's just so funny. Here they are every, like all day long. It's like Gatorades and just bags of cheeseburgers. I was like, okay, let's do this. Why couldn't we come up with something other than diesel to burn this stuff? I mean, because uh, you see that stuff too, like, you know, when they're downrange, you know, and, and overseas and places like that, they're burning stuff. You got those burn pits and stuff, but yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about the burn pits later on. Cause I don't think I put that in my book. Yeah, let's, let's do so. But, but for that, but, the, but they why use diesel? diesel because it'll, they use diesel cause it burns hotter than, than regular gasoline. But if you wanted to enjoy the experience, why not let it linger for a while? <laughs> yeah, but the problem was there was so, so Minnesota people are like weed. Minnesota is because so many hemp farms are out there. I mean, you get some uh, clandestine grows, but most of the time it was just the hemp fields. So when you're burning weed, you're literally burning acres and acres and acres of hemp. So I mean, it's just it's not. How fun. long would you, how long how long would you be out there? Uh, 12 hour days, 10, 12 hour days. And how long would the operation be to get that stuff all done? How long would you guys go a week, four days? Uh, no, we would do 90 day. What we do is we'd go on orders for like five days at a time. So you would have the weekends off. So they would be five days at a time, but the orders would be like for 90 days or so. So basically the whole summer. So you're burning weed for an entire summer. <laughs> you know how many time, college yeah. students where I used to go to school, I, I would have paid for that. <laughs> I'll pay you. Say, if he starts referring to us as dude, dude, <laughs> and look, I never did. Yeah, and the other thing too, that's why I was talked about the Raya, the radio immunoassay. Here, you can take care out and see if you ever done that. I only have one letter. <clears throat> that's when I broke my nose in the academy, really bad. So, what do they use to cauterize your nose? 
hospital grade cocaine, fifteen oh, percent nice. solution of cocaine. To so I've I've got that one mm. letter, but uh, but no, but that's so yeah, nine, ninety days of burning weed, and you wanted to go airborne. Look look at look at what you might have missed. I, I you know I was you know what I could have been airborne. I mean I was you know you could have flown definitely had that, something right? going on. I was some, <laughs> definitely flying around. Hey oh it was. Uh, it was Billy Sarukas. We had a, a one of our other guys. He was actually a U.S. Marshal, one of the guys that actually he identified the D.C. snipers. But he was talking about when he was uh, growing up and working, uh, started working undercover. They were doing LSD. Well, he started licking envelopes and stuff. Well, he actually ingested some of the LSD. Oh. <laughs> Remember that? And he was like, he was tripping. Oh, my gosh. I well, can't what, imagine. Jason needs to read George Jung's book about the tuna. Oh, the, 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 yeah, the psychedelic tuna. Yeah. Oh, there's so many books I need to read. <laughs> no, you don't need to read this one. Nah. <laughs> so you're going through college. So how's that going? I knocked out of college pretty quick. And that was a problem because my wife and I, she commissioned six months ahead of me, but I graduated the same time as her. So it's did because, you have to salute her when you came home? No, <laughs> I don't even remember how that happened. It was, um, Hey, but was it, was that not a tricky thing though, to have, uh, I, I know you're going to, it'll change later, but to have, uh, uh, an officer at a, an enlisted being married, did that cause any problems? No, cause at the time I was a cadet. Okay. Yeah. So she was, um, it's the only time I really, it wasn't really a problem, but when we were at Fort Hood, I was in E4 and she was in E5. So I remember we're like in processing, you know, the NCOs go off and do some, you know, fun stuff. And I'm over here doing police calls. I'm like, oh, this is fun. Yeah. Right. Cause for, for people who don't know, right. Once you hit E5, you become an NCO, but below that you're yeah, not. You're just, you're just the E4 mafia. But no, because I, I knocked out my bachelor's degree in two and a half years, but ROTC, you have to do two years straight. So I kind of went too fast. So I started ROTC later on, like a year and a half into my uh, degree because I was doing it so fast. I didn't have to, I, it, it, the time wouldn't match up if that makes sense. So my wife would commission six months ahead of me. So we plan on going back active duty for another tour, but because we wouldn't be matched up, I ended up just uh, applying to the U.S. Border Patrol again. So this time when the Border Patrol called, you know, and then I, I did have some experience with the Border Patrol. So I went out to San Diego during spring break to visit my friend Chris. And he brought me up on the mountains by Otai, which is Otai Mountains, which is, you know, what, east of San Diego. And it's right by Tijuana. And he brought me up there tracking aliens. Here I am on a ride along in my sneakers in the middle of the night. I was like, oh, this job's pretty badass. I really do need to put in for it. I go back, I apply, but this time when the Border Patrol called me, I said, look, they first they offered me El Centro, which is out in the middle of nowhere in California. Oh, I've been there. Yeah, Not much it's there, beautiful. So, so I yeah. go, you know what? My wife is going to graduate school in San Diego. That's a little white lie. And they're like, okay, we got Brownfield. I'm like, what? Brownfield is my, where my best friend is. So that's when I ended up going to the Border Patrol Academy. I ended up at Brownfield. And I ended up working with him. Had you, did you, so then you didn't finish RTC? Did you not commission? No, I finished. I uh, finished, finished commission as infantry officer. Oh. Um, and then I don't go to uh, my officer basic course till I'm after, you know, I'm in a border patrol. Okay. So you know who the most dangerous person in the army is, right? A lieutenant. Second lieutenant <laughs> with the map and compass. Yeah. And the next most dangerous, the first lieutenant goes, sir, I have an idea. It's kind of like a trooper saying they've got an idea for a yeah. drug raid. Hey, we, we talked about burn pit. So does burn pit come after this or did that happen yeah, before? Yeah, this will come when I was in Iraq. Okay. 
Yeah, so I, I ended up going to the Border Patrol, went down to Fletzy, uh, Georgia, Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Georgia, went through the Border Patrol Academy, ended up in San Diego. So what did you think of the Academy versus uh, BASIC? The Academy, well, you know, it was just different. You know, when I, when I became an 1811 later on, it was like <laughs> compared to the Border Patrol. The Border Patrol was very, so they went from, in the 90s, immigration changed. In 1996, the Immigration Nationality Act changed to be very strict on immigration. So they ended up having to hire thousands and thousands of Border Patrol agents. So they ended up having to get a lot more instructors, get a lot more people through the academy. So I ended up getting hired on that big crew, but it was very paramilitary back then. And it was like, if you fail tests, you can actually get kicked out of the academy, which nowadays, like, uh, good luck trying to kick people out of the academies. So it was very True. militaristic. So, but it was, uh, it wasn't like a gentleman's club, like going to an 1811 course or a criminal investigator course, but it was, it was intense, very good shooting training, uh, really good ground defense training. Cause back then in like the, the two, this was 2000, January, 2000, that's when they just started getting into like, you know, a lot of ground defense, a lot of ground fighting stuff. So it was, it was, I had a good time at the Academy, got in good shape. Yeah. How many people do you remember were in your class? Oh, geez. I think 50 something, if I can remember. How many, do you remember how many graduated? Good chunk of them or? Yeah, almost, almost all of them. I think we only lost one or two because after the, after the Border Patrol Academy, you have a six month test and a 10th month test. And what they're testing you for is law, immigration law, and for Spanish. So if you fail a Spanish test, you're out. And it's not like an easy test either. I believe there was a written test, but then you get in a panel. So you're in a panel with some uh, supervisors and you have to like <laughs> really speak for your life because they did kick people out. I know a lot of people that failed that 10-month test. So you can imagine you're in a border patrol for 10 months. You've got two months left. You're going to skate. You're going to get through. And then you fail the Spanish. Did you know, did you tell them about your D-Lab scores? Do you know how high I scored on my I Spanish? Know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I should have told them that. They didn't care. Now, when you're going the, th but when you're going through the Border Patrol Academy, they're teaching you Spanish. That's part of your training, right? Yeah, you do. You, haven't, uh, you don't have immersion, but you do have intense Spanish. And I ended up hiring a tutor when I got out. And they'll know if you hired a tutor, which is kind of one of those things like, you have to do what you got to do. I mean, is that verboten or something? Are you not allowed to hire a tutor? No, no, they want you to. Oh, they okay. want to know that you want the job. Okay. They want to know that you're there and that you're going to do everything you can to pass. Nice. You know, when I went to uh, when I went to Columbia with DEA, I'd been six months in language school, and that was immersion. And I came out with a two two score. You know, which is what you had. That was the minimum to get down there. And you know, we hired a tutor. After while we got to, Bo you know, somebody in Bogota, because in, in language school, you're learning Spanish from people from other countries, you know, and the, and the, some of the words mean different, the way they clip the words, the speed they speak. So you wanted somebody speaking Colombian Spanish because that's the closest thing to Castilian Spanish, which is supposed to be the real Spanish, you know, so it, it, but you pay the price if you want to do the job. That's what you got to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's one thing I really kick myself for is not sticking up to, with my Spanish. But I'm doing I'm doing way too much <laughs> other stuff to really focus on language. Mm -hmm. Well, 
but but go back to that now. So, but now, at what point do you have to go back through OCS to complete that part of it? Well, how how long are you in Border Patrol before you have to go do that? You're f- finish your so obligation. So September, I went to in June of two thousand one is when I had to go to my infantry officer basic course. I went back to Georgia. Uh, this time I was in Fort Benning, Georgia. And that's uh, when September 11th happened. So I was there from June to September 28th or 29th. How did you get the news? Oh, man. So back then, my wife and I had these little, in order, uh, this was pre-cell phone? I think people saw cell phones back then. But we had these little Motorola email things. They're little flip email things so we could email each other here and there just so she knew where I was and stuff like that. And she was at law school at the time. So she was at law school in San Diego. Dang, she's gone from an E4 through officer and now law school, dude. You got to catch up. Nah, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good, man. You know how I feel. You know, we'll, we'll get into the FBI and how I feel about lawyers later on. But Okay. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a whole nother story. Let's just say. Yeah. So we, she ended up emailing me. And so we were supposed to do our urban training that week. So we're going to be out in the field for a week, uh, assaulting buildings and learning how to do mount. I mean, how to do uh, entries and everything else. And she emailed me. She goes, did you see what happened? I'm like, no. And I run up to my room real quick. And on the news is like one of the towers got hit. Because at the time we're just, we're in a field and we're getting ready. We have all our kit and we're getting ready to go to the field, get ready to get picked up. But then all the uh, the instructors come out and they say, hey, is anybody here from New York? And we're like, what the fuck is going on? Because at the time, everybody thought it was like a small plane. Right. So they pull everybody out from New York. You know, they pretty much just asked them if anybody was, you know, had anybody living or working in near the World Trade Center. Uh, but we ended up going out to the field for that week. And we, I had a really cool captain. And what he would do is he would bring out stacks of newspapers. And so we could see what's going on. And he would kind of like, okay, this is what's going on. Because uh, we know the tower, we knew the towers fell, but then we were out in the field. That was it. So for five days, we had no communication other than those newspapers. So we went from, you know, this is infantry. So we're like, oh shit, we're at war. We went from like the Cold War army to like, you know, this new, this new, who knows what's going to happen army. You know, we all knew we we're going to end up eventually going to war. But it was just really interesting because if anybody remembers the 90s, there really wasn't, I mean, other than Desert Storm and, and Somalia, there wasn't. Grenada, any, right? Or was it Grenada during that time too? Uh, Grenada was 83. Okay. Even, or, yeah. Time and flies then, when you're having fun. But uh, yeah, I mean, there wasn't really, I remember, yeah, there wasn't really anything was big. Yeah. yeah. But nothing big. So now we're like, oh. Other than the first Gulf War. So then I wanted to get back to the border because I figured, you know, I'm, I'm like really the only reservist. There's about a handful of reservists there. And I was like, well, I want to get back to the border because I heard the border, they're going to start infiltrating the border. And I'm like, oh shit, hell yeah, I'm up in the mountains. So ended up graduating uh, officer basic course, went back to the border and I How did, did the another... border patrol handle letting you, how long, how long was your basic course and how did that, how did the border patrol handle letting you go for that amount of time? Oh, the military, you know, that's one good thing about, I think it's USERA. It's a uniform services, like employment act or something or the other. I mean, someone can Google it, but you can actually deploy up to five years and you can go to training for as long as you want. Not as long as you want, but I think you could deploy for up to five years and they have to rehire you. They have to bring you back and put you back. So that wasn't any problem. I mean, they were kind of being, 
shitty about it on a way to, I remember that now, now that you said that, uh, me going to the officer basic course, like, oh, you don't need to do that, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's just the management, because you hire so many people, so many people get promoted quicker than they probably should. It's the Peter mm-hmm. principle. You rise yeah. to the level of your incompetence. So, oh, and you know what? There's two, <laughs> there's two supervisors, that the, the two Ps, now that you bring that up. I'm not going to say their names because we call them the two Ps, and there were two guys who were just nasty. Like two Ps in a pod or what? Yeah, but their last name started with P. That's Got what it. I wanted to say. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting, guys. So anyway, I went back to the border, and I was lucky enough. I got onto the ATV unit. First, I went onto a mountain unit, so I was up um, a lot of times before. Explain a lot the of people, acronym. The unit. Uh, well, you said uh, ATV, all-terrain vehicle. So, oh, okay. I thought, it, I thought you said ATB. Sorry, ATV. Got it. I don't need. I guess we don't need to explain that acronym. Sorry. <laughs> all-terrain vehicles. Uh, but before that, I was doing the mountain apprehension team kind of thing, where you you patrol the mountains rather than sitting on a stationary position. And processing. So then I went on all training vehicles. I actually got to work with my best friend for about six months. And that's when I got picked up to be a uh, U.S. Customs Special Agent. Because I applied to become a U.S. Customs Officer back in the 90s. So then a special agent job opened up and they just used my test for that. I did a quick interview. What's the difference for folks who don't know? What's the difference between an officer and a special agent? So an officer is basically what my parents and everybody else thought I was doing for the past like for a bunch of years is being at the airports or the ports of entry, checking bags and making sure that, but especially agents, plainclothes, a uh, criminal investigator. Hey, and let's go back to your border patrol there just before you went to ATV unit. Now you were up in the mountains and, and I got this from reading your book, Unwavering, which for our listeners, you want to check this out. It's a pretty decent book. And we'll Get it on put Amazon, all the books right? online guys. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. And he's got more than one. So we'll cover those here towards the end of the interview. But when you, so before you went to ATV, you're up in the mountains how many people were you with when you were on a shift physically with you patrolling the mountains? <laughs> well, you know, that's the funny thing about the border is some people don't like to get out. So you have the big mountain range. And if anybody's ever seen the Otai Mountains, they're actually pretty sizable. And they are, um, they're not like the Appalachians over in Jersey. You know, it takes you, you know, you could drop into a canyon and it take you three, four hours to get down, five to six to get back up. So any one time with me, I would be lucky if I had someone with me because you could find some agents would be uh, taking a little siesta because I used to work midnights. So you would, you'd be, you'd be very uh, pressed to find working as uh, most of the time you'd be solo. And then yeah, you'd be so pushing you're out traffic. there, there freaking in the mountains by yourself. How far away is backup? It could be anywhere from two to three hours. You know, because what the hell's wrong with you, had, Jason? Come on, man. <laughs> I'm not dealing. You know what? I, I, I had a lot to live up to because my best friend Chris was just um, he was a machine and he was legendary. So like when I showed up there, he would like drop down when like, traffic was really big, and like be pushing bodies. You know, uh, groups of twenty, thirty, forty by himself. You know, he actually got ambushed. Um, they he went down to get a. Uh, check a sensor out and three guys are waiting for him and they jumped him and they tried to strangle him out with his mic, with the mic cord. They were trying to get his gun out. He was lucky enough. He pulled the trigger on his gun so they couldn't get it, uh, broke his finger. And then he ended up fighting him off. And that's one good thing about the, you know, starting that ground fighting is he was able to fight the three guys off and get out of there with his life. 
But same thing with him. Backup was far away. It's not like the movies. It's not like the PD. The PD, like if you're in a big city, there's helos up. There's nowhere to land a helo down there. And every, and fast roping is great, but if you don't have anybody that could fast rope, not nobody's going to get yeah. down there. There's no LZs. There's no nothing. Now that mountain range has changed. I think they have an actual border road. You know, back then, it was a dirt road. And it was just wide enough for a Bronco. And a lot of it gets washed out here and there. And we would actually stage tires, like a whole stack of tires, up in the mountains. Because they had these old... Um, artillery um, bunkers up there. A lot of people don't realize that there's up in those mountains, there's these old artillery bunkers that could shoot out to the Pacific Ocean. So up there, we would just stow whole, all these tires because there'd be so many tires getting popped. Was that a World War II holdover yeah. from... Yeah, uh, World War II holdovers. Yeah. But it was really neat. I loved working in the mountains. I love that stuff. I love tracking. And I love being out there. Did you, did you, so at, at the Border Patrol Academy, do they teach you tracking or is that something you learn once you get out and post? I think we might have had like you know, a couple hours in tracking. I don't remember, but most of it's on the job training. And, and let me tell you, we go back to, we did an interview with Dave Reichert. He was a lead investigator uh, for the Green River Killers. And um, one of the things he talked about, Murph, remember, they brought in a Border Patrol agent from a tracking. He even months later, he told them. Guy walked this way. He walked twice. Mm -hmm. I mean, the guy was so good at reading the terrain and reading the grass and what happened. That gave Dave and the the uh, their task force and stuff a lot of insight on Gary Ridgeway's movements, how he dragged the body down there, what mm -hmm. he did. So it's amazing what you can do. I loved it. Well, when you were growing up in Jersey, were you an outdoors guy? Well, I mean, were you a hunter and a fisherman? And did I you wasn't have that a hunter or fisherman, but I was always up in the mountains because I mean, where I was living was literally two miles from the Appalachian Trail. Mm hmm. And I was hiking all the time, you know, hiking, playing war and all the other good stuff. But yeah, I was always outside. So when you were doing border patrol stuff, what was the, um, back then, what was, what were some of your biggest concerns? What were you worried about? What was coming across? What were you defending against? I was more concerned about getting stabbed. That was my big, so like when you're out there and you're doing it, you're laying in for a group or you're doing this, you're doing that. I didn't. I wasn't concerned more about getting shot because back then too, a lot of people don't realize you don't, when you're hiking so much, you can't wear a vest, you know, and you can't, I like people are like, I'll oh, just, you know, grab an M4, go down there, a shotgun or whatever. But when you're dealing with the brush and you're beaten brush, it's so everything gets hung up on it. I remember like chasing after a group and this is before I learned how to use a double retention holster. And back then you just need to have a, like a button. You had to have a single retention, meaning like your pistol goes in there, you flip a button over it and you're good to go. I remember running after a group and my pistol got caught in brush and flew out. I was like, holy crap. Ever since then, I was always double retention. My radio would fly out. Everything flies out. So then I stopped using the mic cord and I would just run a, uh, an ear, ear wig. wig up yeah. through my uniform and then I could just unplug and everything else if I needed to. Because everything is hung up. So I would love to go down patrol, have like an M4 strapped to my back or whatever. But when you start, you're literally on your hands and knees crawling up after people. Because the trails they take, a lot of the, you know, the stature, some of these people are from Oaxaca. You're really just hands and knees crawling up these mountains and through bushes and everything else. But my biggest concern was always getting stabbed. I always pictured, what about and that's what... No, I'm oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but what about the critters out there? 
the snakes and the, the yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about and, that in a second. So when you're so it's at midnight or one or two in the morning, and you have to be super quiet. So you're laying in and you're just laying there and shit be crawling all over your body all the time. Oh. You're like when you, <laughs> but you never think about it. It's like, I think that's the thing is you, as long as you don't think about it, you're good. But when I, once in a while I would freak myself out and I'd be like, Oh shit, I'm down here by myself. What if someone stabs me in my ribs? I was always afraid that I was going to get shanked in the ribs for some reason. Even to this day, it kind of freaks me out. But I remember, um, it was daytime and I was actually tracking a group out. And I jumped down onto a rock and there's a damn rattler right there. And I was like, oh, shit. And another time I was tracking (laughs) one out through a field, tracking a group out through a field. And right in front of me was like the Slytherin right through the trail was like this, another huge ass rattler. And I'm like, oh, I think they're good. And then you'd run into like the biggest, these spider nests out there, the biggest damn things in the world. I mean, I just humongous. I'm like, what is up with this? It's like, you know, so did you guys have to get a ton of shots and everything else? Or did you get, uh, were you afflicted by any of these critters and vermin? No, thank God. Uh, Holy cow. I mean, the scorpions and the Gila monsters and, uh, you know, lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, the bug. So there's two bugs. I remember my life. One was when I was an ROTC and there was the biggest mosquito you could ever possibly imagine. I ended up waking up in the middle of the night and it was like, I remember this son of a bitch for the rest of my life because he bit me everywhere. And he's literally had like an, a, looked like a quart of my blood out of its back. And then when I was in Iraq, they had these little, little shitty bugs. I mean, you could tape up your hooch all day long, but they still get in and they'd bite your ass all night. And I'm like, what the fuck? So <laughs> I, I, you know, I just, those two, but for the rest of my life, I'm, I'm 50. I just turned 50. I'm like, those, those, those two bugs, I'm still to this day, it's been 30 years. That mosquito um, had a smile on his face, too. That motherfucker. Left. I killed him, too. He's dead. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Yeah, hopefully it wasn't after you drank all the good stuff and he's trying to steal it away. Oh, Bring it God. back, you little bugger. Yeah, the border was, you know, but the crazy thing is, is like, I didn't know. I thought I knew a lot when I was in a border patrol. I was like, okay, we got the fence. We got this. There's, there's drugs. I don't know anything about the drugs. But when I became a special agent, I ended up going to work like literally two miles away from where I was before. So it was crazy. I was in a high high intensity drug trafficking area group called Operation Alliance, which is in Otai, like right where I was, right next to the mountains where I was at. So what was the drug? Were you customs then, or had ICE come along? No, this was customs. Okay. So what was the drug of choice being smuggled at that time? What were you guys uh, interdicting a lot of? Most of it was weed, and we would get a lot of coke. And once in a while, oh man, what was that one? Uh, Opium. One of my buddies found opium. You know, we did like, yeah, it was crazy. We ended up chasing him up to, um, from L up to LA and, you know, (laughs) fucking opium though. I mean, anything it's San Diego. So it's like the, one of the biggest ports in the, in the world, I think. Yeah. And back during that time, most of the opium was coming out of, uh, out of East Asia. Yeah. That's why it was so weird that it came in through Mexico. Then, well, there was a source. So, I mean, you know, when you get a source, it's like, that's when you start finding out about all the other the real drugs. Well, and the Mexicans, they started, the Colombians started growing poppy and producing heroin mm-hmm. there in the early nineties, I think it was. And, and then of course, it, because the Colombians did it, the Mexicans realized there's profit there and they started growing poppy. And that's when, you well. know, the meth started too back then. That's when we started getting a lot yeah. of more meth coming across. 
And we're talking like really good, like just, yeah. Oh, yeah. Really and you can good. see it migrate. It's kind of started on the coast, started migrating mm-hmm. in. So it started hitting, you know, uh, the fringes, you know, then in the, the, the eastern, western side. And then pretty soon it was in the Midwest. We had guys going to the, I mean, we had guys even on the State Patrol PD working DEA task force. And a lot of that was every, you know, it, all the different ways you can make meth, cold meth, you know, what you name it. Everybody's trying to figure out how to cook that stuff. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, if I remember right, crystal to be considered crystal, it had to be above ninety percent, ninety five percent purity. There's yeah, this was definitely that. yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, but we got so much weed, and I was so I was lucky. So I go, to, I become a special agent. And I go down to, um, I go down to uh, Otai Otai Mesa Op Alliance, and I was, you know, I had that work ethic. The one I had, I got from Chris. The one I brought from the border patrol. So I wanted to be involved with everything at the time. I had no kids, you know, the wife's in law school, so I could work all and, day. Every and book day. in this force, what year are we talking about now? Approximately. This is 2002. Okay. Late 2002. And had you, uh, so the reason I ask is that, um, I got to imagine is that you had a feeling at some point they're going to call you up with everything going on. Uh, no, no. I'm like, who the hell needs an, I thought my wife would get called up cause she was MI. I'm like, who the hell is going to need an infantry guy? You know, because I'm like, yeah, you know, they have so many infantry people and all this other stuff. They're never going to need me. But that's a story for another, give it a couple of years. We'll get there in a minute. Okay. All right. Because that was another one of those like, what the f- beep? <laughs> I forgot we could swear in here. What the fuck? Yeah. Holy what shit. The fuck, yeah. <laughs> over. Uh, so, you know, when I went out there, I started busting my ass. You know, you call me up, you page me at any, or you chirp my phone at any time's hour. Um, for once, I was... And I shouldn't be disgruntled, but for once it was nice to get recognized. I was put on two proactive groups. One of the groups was um, we had an undercover um, tractor trailer business uh, company uh, that we do transport. And the other one was mine. So we would do like proactive cases. Yeah. When you go back to that transport, when you say it was undercover, was that simply to move your evidence around or was that stuff you were using to make oh, cases no, we with? Would, we had a... Um, we had um, a trucking company that we would transport drugs for the car for not cartel because we don't want to say cartel because the FBI or someone will jump into it. But for all the the traffickers, we trans would as they call it now, transnational criminal organizations. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the the DTOs and all the other stuff. Yeah, yeah. The acronyms change with the administrations. I know. Someone needs a oh I forgot reference yes. Someone needs to get promoted <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> no, I was, hey, let me tell you, I was the token hillbilly. That's how I got promoted. Okay. The, <laughs> that's awesome. I love it. <laughs> I got to have you guys on the Protectors podcast sometime. And we're oh, going to yeah, talk, we'll don't on. worry, folks, we're going to, we're going to talk about his podcast and all the stuff he's doing it. So, uh, you know, stay tuned. But yeah, we want to get into that too, because that'll be part of how did you transition out of all of this? But so you're back, you're making cases uh, over in Otai. What's, uh, what's next? Uh, so I'm making cases and I was very lucky. I, so because there was two product groups, we'd always back up each other. So I was able to work and do a ton while I was there. But I remember 2005 coming home from a retirement party. And it's back when I used to drink and uh, I had a few cervezas in me and I got a letter in the mail and it looked like a fake, you know, this was junk mail time. So I'm like, uh, it looked like a fake, like Western Union slash FedEx something. And at the time I was first Lieutenant Piccolo and it said first Lieutenant Piccolo. And I'm like, what the fuck? I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. And I'm, I'm like, and at the time, where was my wife? 
My wife was at the FBI Academy because that while I'm doing all this, she goes and becomes an FBI agent. And oh, by the way, she got deployed to San Antonio for a year. So for Not the guard, because the friend of nine eleven. I mean, if you're going to get deployed, hey, that's a good place to go. <laughs> you know, when you're in intel, you get to go to the nice places. So I get a letter in the mail, and I remember calling my wife up, and I'm like, I'm like, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? And she's like, you got a DUI. I'm like, God, <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, no, because even back then I didn't. Deployed. I don't care about that. Just don't. DUI on a G car. That's the worst. <laughs> oh fuck. <laughs> Okay, I mean, I think there needs to be a whole show where you get like a round table of everybody that's drinking that got caught drinking in their government car with their gun after they got in a wreck and ran away. How many hey, everywhere you go? Uh, we're trying to portray law enforcement in a positive light here. Man. Oh, I Although forgot. We could I have forgot. stories about guys who weren't drinking but left their gun in a restaurant anyway. And more oh, than once. Did it more than once. Time. Once in a foreign country. Oh, my gosh. Or on a plane. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Didn't do that oh, one. Yeah. But. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I got the, so I was like, Hey, you know what? I, I've like, I got recalled. Well, I was like, son of a bitch. Well, you know, when you got that in the mail, is it one of those things where you had to tear off the tabs on the ends of the letter from the government? No, 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 no. it wasn't. You know, because later on, like fast, we'll go back to the, to getting the letter, but fast forward. Um, when I got back from the war, I remember calling my branch manager up and like when you're in a, when you're in infantry or anything else, you have a manager mm -hmm. and he controls like your destiny. And he's probably the guy that I'll, I'll tell you about the guy who recalled me in a minute. Uh, let me make a note about that guy. <laughs> uh, so when I, when I later on, I resigned my commission and that I resigned my commission on the Monday and back he faxed it in, you boom. That Friday I had a tear off, like um, you could tell it was like a tear off sheet, um, honorable discharge. It was like so bizarre. Like the next, you get like the certificate in the mail, like, hey, here's your certificate. It's a tear off DD-214? <laughs> no, it was like an actual honorable uh, discharge. Oh, okay. Because my time was up. So a lot of people don't, well, so when you're, when you're an officer, you're subject to recall until you resign your commission. Now, if you're retired, you're always subject to recall or you could lose your benefits. If you're enlisted, you have to do the eight-year term. So I already did, you know, at this time, what was it, 2005? Yeah, I already had my eight years down with the active duty and National Guard and everything. So when I resigned, I had 13 good years, I think I had. Yeah. But when I got that letter, I was like, holy fuck. And at the time, I, you know, I had my own OCDF case, which is an organized crime, crime drug enforcement task force case. I was co-case on two others. I mean, I was really working my ass off. And thinking to myself, I'm like, I could do so much more on the southwest border than I would anywhere they recall me to. Because when they recall you, they don't tell you where you're going. They just say, you show up, we'll, we'll put you somewhere where you need to go. I'm like, okay. So I ended up uh, turning all my gear in and getting recalled. Got sent to Fort Benning, Georgia. I was there for a few months. Then I went down to Camp Shelby, Mississippi in the summer of 2005. That had to be fun. <laughs> yeah, but you remember the summer of 2005, Mississippi? Mm -mm. Hurricane Katrina. Oh, yeah. Oh, you yeah. know why? That's right, because um, we were concerned that we were not going to be able to hold the IACP, the International Association of Chiefs of Police Convention in Nolens, because it got mm -hmm. hit with Katrina. They were actually able to do it, but that was uh, 2005. Yeah, man. Ah, so yeah. you, trans you transitioned from a war standpoint to what, rescue? Well, no, it was crazy because uh, we get down there and we're in the hurricane. 
And we're in like these 1950s barracks. And I remember there was an empty one right next to us and a tree took it out. Big ass tree. And like after the hurricane, the post literally looked like the end of the movie Predator, like just completely devastated. So Camp Shelby pulls in everybody, FEMA, everybody you can imagine is pulling into the case because they're going to stage out of there. But we still had to deploy and Camp Shelby still needed to be deployable. Like they need, they needed to get people to war. So we ended up having to do the recovery mission for the whole camp. We had to go and uh, cut down everything, all the tents, all these like these huge, um, almost like circus tents were just split in half. Cause they, and they had like, we had to go and cut shit everywhere and do that for days and days. Uh, we still ended up deploying on time. Yeah. So, I mean, there was no, uh, no power, no nothing. How many people did you have to deploy? Well, the funny part was, so I got, I got attached to an artillery unit from oh, Wisconsin. It comes back around again, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And we were supposed to go to Saudi Arabia to do a security mission. That got canceled. We ended up, I was supposed to go to Kuwait with them. We go to Kuwait for a couple months and that's when I got detached. Um, at the most part of their unit had to go up and do security forces. And because I did a 40 hour anti-terrorism course, you're now the expert. <laughs> I am now an expert in anti-terrorism. <laughs> so I go to the Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force in Balad as their anti-terrorism officer. So now I'm a, a subject matter expert on terrorism and ter anti-terrorism. And the majors. only thing you'd been terrorized by at that point was a big-ass <laughs> mosquito. And a hurricane. Uh, mosquito, too. Oh, and now, and now when I get to Iraq, I get terrorized by that fucking mosquito. What little are they, bugs. sand fleas or whatever they call them? I don't know. They were like little green bugs. Oh. So when I was there, though, I was in Balad, which Balad has the biggest, or at the time had the biggest burn pit. And tell people where Balad is. Uh, Balad is in Iraq, and it's 89, 90 miles north of Baghdad. And it held a, um, it was an air base, but it also had one of the biggest hospitals, military hospitals. So next to the military hospital was a burn pit. Oh, that makes and, perfect sense. Yeah, you want people um, to recover, and then let's put noxious shit next to them and set fire to it. And this place, the burn pits are like football fields, like like three or four football fields big. And they burn 24-7, and they use everything to ignite it, jet fuel, diesel, everything. And what they're doing is they're burning every piece of waste you can imagine. From the Humvees that get blown up, they throw like the whatever, they, they gut them, throw the innards into there. The medical waste plastics, everything. And so what happens with a burn pit is, yeah, it's smoke, right? It's cool. It just goes up in the air, but it doesn't. It settles and it goes across the whole base. And what happens with burn pits is inside of it is particulate matter. Now you could wear a mask. You can wear an M95 mask. It's going to go right through it. Uh, nobody can wear a MOP4 mask or a regular gas mask 24-7. You just can't do it. And I remember in Balad, they had a guard shack right next to that burn pit that a, a kid had to go up there and watch the perimeter. So you're burning everything all day, every day, ammo, any, any batteries, not ammo, I should say, but um, batteries, everything you can imagine. And this particulate matter goes into your, into your airways and it gets embedded into your lungs. It's almost like the 9-11 responders. You know how they go down there to get all that dust and everything in there, even though they're wearing masks? It gets embedded in your lungs. And what happens is it festers there for years. And I'll tell you, I'm going to fast forward here in a minute, and then we'll go back to the rest of my story. All this shit gets embedded in your lungs. And a lot of it turns into cancer. 
And that's where you're finding all these soldiers years later getting cancer. So last year I go and I have a health scare in March or May of this, uh, May of 2022. I ended up having to go to the hospital. And, you know, while they're doing a CT scan to check out my, uh, my heart, they scan my lungs and they're like, oh, fuck, what is this glassy opaque matter in your lungs? And it turns out that I have all this shit embedded in my lungs. And now I have these little, uh, how was it? Six centimeter, six millimeter, five millimeter nodules growing in there. So now I have to go every six months. And oh, by the way, I can't run worth a shit anymore. Like I can run and I could sprint and stuff like that. But if I go and, you know, run for any long particular amount of time and I start really getting huffing and puffing, I could tell. Um, when I wake up in the morning, I have so much mucus and all this other shit that I have to expel. And you could just tell, and now my, you know, going to the VA, they finally passed what they call the PAC Act, which I don't know, maybe we look up the acronym, I don't know what it is right now. But it's to really saying, hey, it, if you've been in these zones, then you might have been exposed to toxic uh, particulate matter. So yeah, thanks to um, thanks to President Bush, I now have toxic exposure, and that was a little one good thing I came out of that deployment. It was, you know, coming back with something that I really didn't want, and that's the same thing with being in Kuwait. You know, where I was living in Kuwait was right next to the Highway of Death, and that's where they they're still. And a lot of people in, in um, Desert Storm is when you have this miles and miles of highway where we bomb the shit out of all the fleeing. Oh, uh, the highway of death. Yeah. Yeah. When the A-10s just took out everything. Yeah. And there's still all, there's still to this day, probably um, demolishing all that equipment. They're still getting rid of it all. So that was all there. Hey, real quick. I found the name for you. So the PACT Act uh, is the full name of the laws, the Sergeant First Class Heath Robinson honoring our promise to address comprehensive toxics act. You know, didn't, did the commander of the base not realize or even suspect that, oh, this is probably not a good idea burning all this crap no, every it wasn't day? Even the commander. Unbelievable. And here's what the problem was. Like, because we were getting attacked all the time, and they call it Mortaritaville, so you're getting mortared every day. If you go out of the post, you're going to get IED'd. So you can't just burn shit off post. So this lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, I think in 2008 or 2009, goes, hey, you know what? This is bullshit. I'm going to go do a test, and we're going to test these burn pits, specifically in Balad, and we're going to say, hey, you know what? This shit is killing. Is going to kill our troops, or it's killing our troops. And they try to discount them. It did not, was it 2022 is when the PAC Act passed? They're finally acknowledging it. It's like our Agent Orange. Yeah, that's about to say. It almost sounds like Vietnam all over again. Yeah, can you imagine? I mean, what? They didn't say that Agent Orange did anything until, like, what, 1980, if they did? Yeah, it took quite a while. Yeah. And now they're finally, and you know, for years and years and years, I remember I put in for my first, um, my first claim for toxic exposure because I was having lung problems in 2011, denied, 2013, denied. Now I've been in review since, uh, 2021. Unbelievable. What, I mean, mean, what is there to review? Well, you know, we can't tell if you got that from the war. I'm like, well, I was perfectly healthy before that. I was humping up all down the mountains, and now I'm, you no, know, I can't. Now I can't. So, I mean, and is and there granted, anything that can be done for it? I don't know. I mean, you know, and it's crazy because one of my really good friends from work 
was a 9-11 responder and he was down working the sites. And he just got, uh, like three years ago, he got horrible cancer, horrible cancer. And I'm always wondering to myself, I'm like, is this shit going to hit me? And the only reason I want to get um, the disability for it, so if it does hit me, then maybe something for the kids. I don't even know if that if they, anything ever transfers over to the kids or not at all. So and I mean, I'm this look, is crazy. I'm looking at this about the PAC Act. It wasn't published until August 22, just tw- August of yeah. last year. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm still in review. Wow. But, you know, that goes back to uh, we just had uh, Pete Forcelli on ATF agent who worked yeah. Ground Zero. And Pete, you know, Pete, yeah, um, he lost uh, same thing with him, cancer. Mm-mm-mm. 9-11. Uh-huh. And how, how long did they say, like, oh, really? People are getting cancer from that? Uh, there's no way. Nah, it can't be. You can't, can't you know. Be. Look how many people have passed from that. Yeah. Even well, if it's and, just respiratory. And, and to the point, too, to where now it's being added to the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, good. Accounting accounting for all the deaths from uh, exposure, just the same way they did with COVID. They, they're now doing for 9-11 and anything like that. You don't really chat my ass a lot about the war, and I, I wanted to bring this up, too. Is I remember... So I was, I was very, I was lucky. I wasn't, I shouldn't say I was lucky. I mean, I wasn't exposed to half the shit that a lot of people had, but I remember, you know, and I had the luxury of getting coffee. So I'm in, I'm working for the special forces. I'm in, in the break room and you'd like to not think that people do this kind of shit. So there was this SF uh, special forces major over there. This was his only deployment. The war's been going on. I wonder if he ever deployed after this, but he came over there for like 90 days to get his combat patch and go back. He was going to work staff. And I remember I'm in there and I'm, I don't know how I got in a conversation. I was going to the coffee pot and he worked HR for a national guard or not national guard, but for um, the reserve component or some shit. He was the one in charge of recalling people. He's a guy probably recalled you. I was like, okay. So then we ended up talking and he goes, okay, I just, I had to recall this unit they were air defense artillery because at the time they needed air defense artillery for something. He goes, but we didn't need them after I recalled them. So I reclassified all of them as 88 Mike truck drivers. So he took all of these air defense guys and he made them truck drivers in Iraq. And he's proud of that. And he's fucking proud of that. That's uh, his they're going to get their, they're going to earn their, their combat action badges. And I was like, I wonder what ever happened to that dude. You know, there's a lot of these guys that came over there, a lot of these uh, these officers that popped in from the Pentagon to get their combat patches and then to go back. They work staff for 30, 90 days and, and go back. Well, if there's any justice or karma, you know, he got run over by a truck driver. You know, can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the old days, you know, Vietnam, My, I know my dad, um, a story we had, had to hear about from another family member, but uh, he basically threw a uh, lieutenant colonel, he was an E-8, he threw a lieutenant colonel out of the tent because they wanted to go do something stupid, which is going to get people killed. Mm-hmm. And apparently, I, I don't know, this part I don't know for sure, but it's like one of the popular things to do back then was frag some, uh, you know, assholes. And it's like, no, we're not going to do that. But it was not unusual to throw some of these guys, to your point, out of the tent or do something to them because they were 90-day wonders there, you know, just to get something. Everybody else got to live with their decisions that they make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always wonder, Mike, you know, you, you guys both know you've been around for a bunch of years with Murph's been around centu- we say centuries with Murph. <laughs> You're just jealous. Seventy years, yeah. 80 years, eighty years, something like that. Yeah. Now Come it's on. weird because I'm thinking like ninety three is when I went in, and I'm retiring in twenty twenty three. It's like thirty years worth of. And the people you run into, it's like you're like, how do they get to where they are? And you're like, but you know what? The end of the day is like, 
living with yourself. And once we get into the whistleblower story later on, someone brought up a good point about it. And I'll bring that up later on. But it's like, at the end of the day, when you retire, you're not retiring. You're going to retire with a title and people are going to forget you like, you know, five minutes later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you got very short shelf life once you retire. Then it's Steve who, Morgan who, you know, Jason who. Yeah. Hey, well, let's, let's, how long were you deployed in Iraq? Uh, In Iraq, I was there 10 months. Total deployment was 18 months. So when you were not in Iraq, where were you? Kuwait. Kuwait, okay. uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, and Camp Shelby, Mississippi. So while while you were in Iraq, a um, couple things that raised your pucker factor. You talked about Mortaritaville, but uh, any close things that affected you? Uh, mostly just the mortars. I mean, that was every night. Uh, but other than that, it was just the burn pit shit. And then, yeah. When the mortars would come in, did they sound a, an alarm and you had to run to the... The shelters, or what do you do? Ah, uh, that's a funny story. In the beginning, you run to... <laughs> In the beginning, but then later, it's like, fuck, it's a mortar, whatever. Oh, man. So, sleep. like, I'm, I'm, I was fortunate enough to be on a special forces compound, so it, was, it wasn't as army as army is, you know? So, one half of the compound is, like, you know, the regular uh, Green Braves. The other half of the compound is, like, where the Delta guys are and the SAS and everybody else. So, I would always go over there to eat. And I remember my buddy and I, this is probably about four or five months we're into it. And when the alarm goes off, you know, um, in the beginning, you're like, oh shit, we got to go find shelter. But after a while, you're just like, ah, fuck it. And then they have like these C-RAM things. They're like big Gatling guns that shoot down the mortar rounds. So you'll hear them go, burp. So I remember there was this Navy SEAL that just got over there. And a guy's been around for a while, but he's never deployed. I think this was his first deployment, like into a war zone. So my, I shouldn't be mean because I'm just like a leg infantry guy, but because I know that special force guys are out there and be like, oh, this guy doesn't know shit. But when we saw that thing, when we heard the alarm go off, I got to my buddy. I'm like, and my buddy at the time was like, this was like three, he was in a war for like three or four different times. And he's got a CIB and all this other good shit. And then um, I go, let's run and act like we're running to the shelter. And there was like a little shack. So we're like, oh my gosh. And the guy sees us go, oh my gosh. And we run behind the shack and this guy's like running. He's like, where do I go? Where do I go? He's like, <laughs> but it was like the funniest thing. And like, as soon as he found his shelter, we ended up just walking a child. But like after a while, he was like, oh, whatever. <laughs> now, could you tell by the sound how close they were? Did you get to that point where you could say, yeah, we probably should do something or now nah, it's far away or did it just get to the point where it was just white noise? It just white noise at the time. The only thing I hated was like sleeping in the bunk at night. You know, and I remember one night I was laying there and I'm like, the alarms are going off. And I'm like, okay. And then I heard a thud. And I'm like, huh, I wonder if that was a dud. <laughs> Damn. And? Like, yeah. I don't know. Fuck, oh. fuck if I know. <laughs> I went over there for uh, a TDY and uh, we were at Bagram. And in Bagram Air Base, they, they had shot spotters up in the mountains. Did you guys have stuff like that? It was such a flat area around us. They would drive around with like trucks, uh, pickup trucks, and just shoot the mortars off of them. Mm, okay. Yeah, because in Bagram, they they would launch the little birds and they'd go up and attack the, you know, wherever the shots were coming from. Yeah. It's funny you were mentioning the CIB, the Combat Infantry Badge. I'll tell you, one of the weirdest sights uh, when I went through basic 1979, we had some guys that actually were in Vietnam, got out and came back in. And so when you're there and you're seeing an E3 that's going through basic training with you with the CIB, you're going, mm-hmm. what the fuck? <laughs> you know, we had a couple, we had drill sergeants with CIBs, you know, 
true, you know, airborne, uh, badass guy. So it was kind of a fun time too. Cause they, they had seen, they, most of those guys had been in the shit, you know, they had seen it. So when I got back, you know, while I'm doing all this, my wife goes to Philly with the FBI and I got back and I remember, uh, you know, at the time my, so before I went to the war, uh, my oldest brother, um, he's eight years older than me or was eight years older than me, <clears throat> was addicted to, um, cocaine. And because he was a boxer, he boxed a lot, very physically fit guy. He was doing cocaine and he was also doing ephedra. So he had a heart attack. So I ended up moving my brother out to San Diego to get him straight. And this is right before the war. So that all kinds of coincides in a minute. So I get him out to San Diego. I get him in a rehab. <clears throat> um, he walks out of rehab. So I end up having to get him in a halfway house. I get him in a halfway house. He wasn't doing too good there, but he did meet this guy, this guy named uh, Forrest. So him and Forrest move in with Forrest's dad. And Forrest was into crystal meth, but he knew a lot of the guys in the drug organization. So I'm like, oh, this would be good. I'll, I'll flip him. So my dumbass flips Forrest. So that means my brother and him are still, you know, together. Um, and then I, I hand off Forrest to one of my partners and and Forrest ends up getting my brother addicted to a crystal. So then I get recalled. So at the time when I get recalled, that's why I bring up my wife in the FBI. She's in, in, uh, on the other coast. So nobody's there to take care of my brother. And I didn't, I didn't have enough money to put him up. So I remember I was able to, um, Forrest's dad comes up, calls me up one day. This is like a week before I'm deploying. And he goes, you, you got to get your brother out of my house or I'm going to call the cops. He found a pipe, found a crystal pipe. So I got in there, I got my brother. I'm like, bro, I'm like, what are you, I'm like, don't lie to me. Are you, don't lie. are you doing this? And he's like, yeah. So I didn't interrogate my own brother. Ended up putting him up in a hotel, but I'm like, fuck, you know, I can't take care of him. <clears throat> so he ends up uh, becoming homeless while I get deployed. So when I get back from the war, um, my brother um, got arrested for evasion, then he got released, and then he got rearrested again for failure to pay child support. So he's in jail when I get back. And I remember, uh, what do you call it? Um, so he's in jail. <clears throat> and I'm like, okay, cool. So it's like my birthday. He calls me on my birthday, which was January 9th. And he goes, hey, uh, you know, I just want to call you, wish you happy birthday and stuff. And I remember at the time I had this guy with like, it was in my house in Jersey and he was going to put new hardwood floors in for us. So I kind of blew my brother off. And at the time, my brother's straight. Like I could tell he could, like, he's writing me letters. He's good to go. He's, you could tell he's sober. He's just about to go on work release. He got a job at a restaurant. So what they were going to do is let him go home, not go home, but at night work at a restaurant and he would go back to the jail, pay off his, later I found out he only had to pay three grand. I could have got him out of jail. I didn't even know about it. Um, but I remember um, January 17th, I had an, a voicemail, and it was from the warden's lieutenant, or the lieutenant at the jail. Uh, this Jason Pickle, you need to call us. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm like, I'm thinking my brother uh, probably got in a fight, probably got stabbed. For some reason, I kept thinking stabbed because that's always been like my fear. So I'm like, hey, he's going to be okay. So I call up, and the lieutenant's like, your brother's dead. Pretty much, I'm like, what? I mean, I, no respect, no nothing. It was just basically, hey, I'm calling to tell your brother's dead. Um, like, what what happened? He's like, hey, he collapsed on a basketball court and died. We tried to resuscitate him and blah, blah, blah. Like, for one, why? The guy already had a heart attack. He had a stent. 
why is he, why isn't anybody monitoring his health? And why is he playing basketball? Because, I mean, obviously that's not a good thing to do. It's one of the stress relieving, stress things in the world. And he said, hey, uh, I'm like, okay, well, where, where is he? And they told me the hospital he's at. At the time, my whole family is estranged. So I had to call up, uh, call up my dad. And my dad, blood pressure spikes, and he almost has a heart attack. And they sent him to the hospital. Where does, where's your dad living? He's living in East Strasburg. And oh, by the way, when they send him to the hospital, they send him to the same hospital my brother's dead body's at because it's right up the road in Pennsylvania. So then I call my other brother up. We all go to the hospital. And then my brother's kids, the one that died, Mike, his daughter is nine months or eight months pregnant. So I got to call them up. And then uh, when I go to the hospital, you know, my dad is literally down the hall from my brother, like where the, the morgue room is and or where they have his body. And my mom is a very spiritual. She's like, I need to know that's your brother. I need to know that he's he's really that he's really gone. And I'm like, oh fuck. So I go to the nurse. I'm like, can I can I go see him? So I remember going to the room and seeing his dead body, and seeing that they had the uh, the tube coming out of his mouth. And I was like, son of a bitch. And I'm like, later on when I so uh, a couple days later, my dad turns out to be okay. The family, everything. We we bury my brother. And I think the day after I buried my brother, the the warden, uh, the warden staff calls up and says, you need to come get your brother's stuff or we're going to like get rid of it. I remember going into the, uh, going into the lobby and the warden's there. He was waiting for me. I go, Hey, you know, uh, I want to know what happened. You know, my, I'm in, I'm in LEO. My wife's in LEO. And he goes, I'm not, I can't tell you anything. Kind of blew me off and goes back, talk to his admin staff, hands me a plastic bag. And in that plastic bag is all my brother's stuff. And, you know, his Bible and letters and all this other stuff. But I remember he had a box of Cheez-Its and the warden or whoever staff literally poured it all out in there. So I had like all my brother's worldly possessions are in this bag with Cheez-Its and everything else all over it. I'm like, you know what? What a dickish move. What Mm -hmm. a dickish move. And that goes in later on, like doing the right thing. And I remember reading through my brother's letters and in there, it was a letter, um, uh, that he didn't get to send yet. And he was sending it to one of his buddies and says, you know what? Um, I'm going to do all this on my own. I'm not going to, you know, uh, Jason's done enough. I'm not going to, you know, it's three grand to get out. I'm going to pay it off. I'm not going to ask him for the money. And I, and that's where it was like three in there. He says something about three grand. I'm like, if I paid three grand, I could have my brother alive today. If I think, if I think about it that way, but then I'm like, I don't second guess it now. Yeah, man, but, you yeah. can't second guess it. Cause you don't know. Right. I mean, with, with that condition, it might've been, it's certainly not your fault. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. Believe me, I, I thought about it over the years. But I remember, you know, at the time, I I, I told ICE, and at, at this time, it turned into Homeland Security Investigations, which turned into ICE. I don't even know what the acronym was back then, because it changed so many times. It was the Office of Immigration and Customs Enforcement. It was BICE, too, at one time, Bureau. I remember getting hold of my bosses and saying, hey, look, I've been gone for 18 months. My brother just died. My family's all fucked up. Uh, I've been away from my wife at this time for three years with her deployment in the academy and all that. I found three open spots because uh, I had some buddies in Philly. They have three open spots here. They need to fill. Uh, can I just get a transfer? And they're like, no. I'm like, really? I'm like, I already turned in all my stuff. I'm just a body. And I'm like... I'm like, can I get a transfer? And they're like, again, they're like, no. I'm like, okay. Not even any consideration? None. 
zero, zilch. And you're going to love this one too. So I don't think I put this in my book. <laughs> so, uh, and you guys are getting the shit out of me. Damn. Hey, train, we're here train for. interviewers. Uh, that's why I like doing this, like these like 30 minute interviews. I'm like, boom, 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 whistleblower, I'm out. Boom. <laughs> Check the podcast. Yeah, see, and you, you were going to do, yeah, then I, after I got out of the army, it's like, no, no, oh, no, no, no. Oh, man. Let me have a drink of coffee for this one because this one still chaps me to this day. And this was what makes Game of Crimes different from all the others. So let's, you, you, we were talking about the supervisor and denying your request. So I'm still stunned with everything going on that they just wouldn't do, do you a solid for all the work that you've done. So what's the story behind that? (laughs) Yeah. You and me both. Uh, I'll get into the supervisor in a minute, but the lucky thing is I actually put in for a job with army CID, had these temp jobs, uh, army criminal investigation, criminal investigation division working for this place called the criminal investigation task force at Fort Belvoir. And what the job with that was, was it was a three year term position and it was in DC, which is a lot closer than San Diego. So it was close to home. And what it would be doing is doing a prosecution packets for the detainees at Guantanamo Bay. It was an easy job to get. So I was like, okay, um, they offered me the job and they say, okay, you can start on March 17th if you want it. So I go to my supervisors at ICE I go, look, I've just been offered this job here one last time. Can I, can I get this transfer? And they're like, no. So I'm like, okay. So then I, I send a let, I send an email and I have it still. I should put it, should have put it in a book and just redacted some names. And I send it to my supervisor and I CC the main supervisor. Now at one time, my, my supervisor at the time is a group soup. He becomes an ASAC and then he ends up running the agency years later, just retired a couple of years later. But his boss, um, I go, Hey, look, you know, after my, you know, uh, years of service, I, unfortunately I have to, and due to family issues, I unfortunately have to resign. Uh, and I go into the whole story about, you know, brother and this and that. So his boss ends up the, the special agent in charge of San Diego ends up thinking that he's emailing my boss emails back and says, Hey, scratch Piccolo off our transfer list. Hope he doesn't let the door hit him on the ass on a way out. Lovely, lovely parting comments. He goes, DC doesn't sound like Philly. And basically says, you know, fuck him. I was like, wow. And then I email back. I go, well, you know what? Um, I'm sorry you feel this way after, you know, but I, I must make these decisions. What an idiot. Wow. And you know what? I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because when you were doing drug cases in San Diego, what was the priority for the for the ICE office then? It wasn't drugs, was it? No, money. Money and counterfeit? Yep. Gucci bags? Yep. Yeah. Oh, and cigarettes, too. Cigarettes. cigarettes. <laughs> we did a wire case in San Diego for months and months and months on cigarettes, and they never even end up, I don't even think they even got a conviction out of it because it was taxes. They Someone wasn't paying the taxes. So we we got paid overtime to run surveillance on a cigarette smuggler while all these tons and tons of uh, dopes going across the border, all the drug groups and everybody had to run a wire on a fucking cigarette uh, smuggler. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And you know, this guy ends up uh, later on in life becomes like, you know, like my boss becomes the director and this other guy becomes, gets all the attache jobs he wants overseas and the, the same type of people. And it's like, you know, the worker bees are just boom. 
Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash gameofcrimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash gameofcrimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.